We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, Slate listeners. I'm Christina Cotarucci, the host of Slow Burn, Gaze Against Briggs. I want to tell you about a special event we're doing at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York City on June 13th. To celebrate this new season of Slow Burn and Pride Month, we're hosting an exclusive live taping of the show with special guests, including civil rights activist and Black Lives Matter organizer DeRay McKesson, comedian and singer Esther Fallick, Eric Marcus, the host of Making Gay History, and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure, about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs Initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash slowburn. Hope to see you there. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Dear Prudence. Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence podcast. Uh, I am Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. And uh, with us in the studio this week is Carvel Wallace, uh, a writer whose work has appeared at MTV, The New Yorker, and The New York Times, uh, and who most recently wrote a long-form history of the Negro Motorist Green Book. Carvel, welcome to the studio. Thanks uh, for having me. I am really glad that you're here for the opening of this episode, actually, because I wanted to start by talking about the greatest letter I have yet received mm-hmm. in in the Dear Prudence canon, which is uh, the woman whose boyfriend has a tattoo on his back that is either a rosary mm-hmm. or a pearl necklace okay. with a bead commemorating every woman he has either dated or slept with. That's, that's nice. And he has, I believe he's up to 42. Uh-huh. And he recently, as a surprise, gifted her with an addition of four 
beads. Why? So she got four because... She got four. We're not clear. Okay. It, it seems to be maybe a rating system, like four... I don't know, four stars or a five star I see. is his scale. Yeah. But it was clearly like, you're four times better than those other gals. Than, than, the, one, than the one pearl or one bead lady. It's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's again, uh, and I don't know how he, like, marks those. I don't know how she knows which four are hers. Okay. Um, and these people are in a relationship. Like they're, they are dating. They're, they're an been, item. I think they'd been together for a while. Okay. Uh, and it was just really wonderful because this was like a brand new letter. I've never had a question that was quite like this. I've had questions about weird boyfriends and bad tattoos. Um, uh-huh. But this was really, this was brand new. This was a new problem. And, and he sprang it on her like, hey, surprise. Yes. I got you some beads to represent your By the level way, of accomplishment. And it sounds like up until this moment, she had thought that the tattoo was just like a religious tattoo. Like, like a general rosary. He's Catholic. He's like, got a rosary. Like a non-sex related. Like, no, no. A non-doing it rating system. I get a new one every time I, I have a new sexual partner. <laughs> and baby, you're the latest. <laughs> well, I, this is, I, I hope she feels flattered because this is a wonderful thing this man has done to, mem- to memorialize all I can His think of caring and love for her. All I can think of is the Count of Monte Cristo, like marking the days in his cell. You know, <laughs> the, with Roman yeah, numerals. There is something. There is something prison-like about the whole arrangement, but it almost makes it feel like that. Um, you know, for him, each person he sleeps with is some kind of like. Uh, it's like his last chance for something. It definitely feels like he's something big's going to happen emotionally when he runs out of room on his back. I think the the question maybe that's when he get married. See, you're, you're always taking it to the dark place. Maybe he's <laughs> building up to a lifelong commitment. But I, but the thing I wonder about most is like, so she's got four, right? Like he made he added four beads and said, "Baby, this you're 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 a four. No bead one's lady. gotten four before. Oh, so it's like so she she set a record. It, it, it would seem, setter. but it also seems like he sort of switched it up. It used to just be like one per person, uh-huh. and now it's turned into a rating system. And, I see. And it seems like a little arbitrary, just well, sort of like, you get four. Well, the statistician in me does not like that at all. Because yeah. uh, as we know from Major League Baseball, if you don't count records the same way over time, then how you can how can you compare a player from one era to a player from another era? So he's, and I like, feel like, he's like the Pete Rose of sex tattoos. In some ways, he is, because he, he violates the game. I, I, I feel really good about knowing that <laughs> That's your reference. one sports reference for, like, I think the millennia? If I, I get that, and also everything from the Homer at the Bat episode of The Simpsons. Right. All, all Simpsons sports-related things aside, mm-hmm. that's pretty good. That's about all I have. Yeah. Um, but I, I think my other the other thing about it that was just so amazing is he has this, like, very personal sexual history tattoo. <clears throat> tattooed on a part of his body that it's okay he to can't get choked see. up this is an emotional thing this is a beautiful thing i i, I understand like, why he can't see his own right. sexual scorecard <laughs> right. he has to like right right he has to take other people's word for it yeah. but it's there yeah well it's because he, he's put all that stuff behind him you see. oh hey, hey. where's okay. the uh where's um, the rim shot that's you don't I, have that i i just thank you <laughs> thank you for that um no but i loved that question it was wonderful um if if anyone who is listening has a better ex with a really strange or ill-advised tattoo story please uh let me know please send pictures yeah uh prudence at slate.com um, I, I would like to get more questions about uh, tattoo-initiated arguments, actually. Yeah. Let's, let's have more of those in the studio. Okay. Uh, we will. Great. Have you, ever, have you ever gotten in a fight with someone about a tattoo or the idea of a tattoo? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I got a tattoo of my mother's name on my arm. Uh, and it was not under the best of circumstances. It was right after she died, and I was really depressed. And I looked up 
her name in in Google Images one morning. Oh wow! And the image that came up was like the logo for this stationery card company that has the same name she did. And I just went and got that tattooed on my arm. So uh, no one fought with me about that because I think everyone was just like he's he, like no one's gonna is, no one's gonna like come at you directly about that. Right. But I think. I think there was there was conflict implied. Do you wish that someone had tried to hold you back? You know, the irony of it is that it's actually a really beautiful tattoo. And it turns out that this company changes their logo on a semi-regular basis. So when I went back to to uh, look at the tattoo, like the Google image after I got the tattoo done, mm-hmm. it was totally different. It was like in ransom letters. <laughs> and so if my mother had died like a, like a week later... I would have had her name tattooed on my arm. I never thought I would say this, but I'm really glad your mom died when she did. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Things have a way of working out. But the tattoo, it ended up being beautiful. It was a beautiful logo, and I'm happy I got it. Uh, It looks nice. I've seen it. Yeah. It was not under the best of circumstances, but... Yeah, no. Much of life is not. It's it's not it's not a heart with the word mom written no, over it, which I think not. could have been a real step down. Right. Um right. have you ever gotten a fight with someone else over a tattoo that they got? I'm going to have to dig in the crates to to like remember that. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't think I've ever I try not to take people's tattoos personally. You know what I'm saying? Well, we're just not going to get along. <laughs> have you? Is I that, always I take every tattoo for... I see personally. Okay. I see tattoos on strangers and okay. I take it personal. Can you tell me about a situation in which you have had a fight with someone about? I have a lot of fights in my head with people about <laughs> their tattoos. Um, it is hard, but especially once someone's gotten one. Right. You can't. What can you? All you can do is make them feel bad about something they can't really change. It's a little bit like when someone has a baby and they name it something god awful. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And you're like, you can't say you can't anything because you bell. can't unring that bell. Yeah, can't put that toothpaste back in the tube. Yeah, and I think most people, when they're asking for advice on a tattoo, have already made up their minds, and right. what they're really looking for is for you to betray the fact that you don't like their idea. <laughs> right. And then when they get it, they can say, "Well, now do you like it?" That's right. And you have to say, "Oh yeah, right. oh you know when I was picturing it, I thought you meant." That's right. Something that's worse, right. but this is, I like yeah, this. It's, yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, oh. I've seen some terrible tattoos. Yeah. They happen. Yeah, but um, I'm glad that you're able to, to let that go. Okay, uh, before we get started by talking about the letters from mm. this week, uh, I want to make one announcement about uh, a new policy. Oh. Uh, which is there's a certain type of letter that comes in a lot, especially to the Dear Prudence inbox that has to do with wedding etiquette. Mm. Which is already, I might not be the best person to ask about that because there are kind of classic areas of wedding etiquette that I um, don't don't really agree love. with the sort of uh, received wisdom. Um, but especially there's a certain type of question about wedding etiquette, which isn't, uh, should I do the thing I'm considering or, you know, is it okay for me to decline this invitation because something happened that really upsets me? But it's just asking for a ruling. Usually about how the the couple that's getting married has arranged their uh, registry or the way in which they're asking for gifts or I money. Um, and, and what the writer always wants to know is just, don't you think that's tacky? Right. So they, people come to you for like a judgment. Yes. Like you're like, like, like it's they, the people's court. They just want a stranger to say, that is tacky. Right. You should feel quietly superior to right. those people. Right. Um, and I, I, that's not a very interesting question. And I also like it's 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 it's, the question I got most recently was this couple uh, asked for they had like a crowdfunding set up so that we could help pay for their honeymoon if we wanted. Uh, And and the, the, the letter writer said, I actually always give money at weddings, but I still don't like this. 
Don't you think it's tacky? <laughs> and I think it's really weird the way the word tacky gets used about mm. other people's weddings. Yes. And I'm not quite sure what it is that bothers me, but it feels like this really has a lot to do with class in a mm-hmm. way that feels uncomfortable. Mm. Um, and like, I think you can always get more specific. If what you mean is like rude or presumptuous, say mm-hmm. that. If what you mean is just, I don't like it. Right. It's not the way I would do it. Yeah. yeah. Which is the question is like, don't you think I should like disapprove of them? Like, I guess, That's man. Right. But like you already went to the wedding. You weren't asking if you shouldn't go. Right. You weren't, you're not apparently not close enough to them to say like, hey, I actually think it's rude of you to ask your guests right. for, for money for your honeymoon, which right. I don't know why a kitchen aid isn't rude. But a honeymoon is. Right. That well, feels a little arbitrary to me. Well, I think that is the thing that you're getting at with this whole notion of whether or not stuff is tacky. Because, like, these weird, like, class markers of what's appropriate and not etiquette-wise mm-hmm. are completely freaking arbitrary. Right. And, th- and they're arbitrary f- specifically for the reason that if you don't know them, it just means that you didn't grow up in the right in the way. right, yeah, yeah, it, you it should know. It, have, like, none of them has any real value. Like, why it's okay to give someone a mixer and not okay to give someone, like, an envelope filled with cash. Sure. It makes no difference. Like, they're the same thing, literally, but by knowing that the mixer is okay and the envelope isn't, you're proving that you have this, that you come from this, this like, background. Right. And by not knowing that, you're proving that you don't belong. Right. And that's what weddings are about. They're about belonging. Yes. And they're about you joining a families and ideas, and people are like, I don't know if I accept. This person is now coming into our fold. We have our way of doing things, and, like, if you do something weird, that means maybe you don't belong here. Yeah, I, and I think that you've hit on why those questions bother me, because it sort of feels like, I mean, honeymoons are expensive. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of people would rather go on a trip with someone they love than get a stand mixer that's yeah. like $300 yeah. for something that is essentially a whisk. Well. Like a whisk plus a really strong arm that, that doesn't get bit. tired. Stand mixers are badass. They always leave a mm. ring that they can't get to. I prefer, mm. what's the kind of mixer that you use with your hand? Like the beaters are still electric, but you can move it around. The hand mixer? Yeah, that's the one. But that's, I mean, all due respect. Most like 40 bucks, all probably. All due respect. I can't remember the last time I bought one. All due respect. I don't, I don't know that you've done enough baking to fully appreciate. Wow. Yeah, that's wow. right. Wow, okay. We just went there. Okay. To fully appreciate the Aerial massive woman difference. bakes insufficiently. <laughs> this is true. I mean, you're baking a cake, some brownies, sure, a hand mixer is fine, but once you start getting into like all the different kinds of folds that you have to do to get like different batters to set up in different ways and be aerated on different levels. I don't like where this conversation is going because I feel like I went from being right to not being so right. That's, yeah. And I would like to stop. Conversely, I enjoy this conversation, so that just goes to show. Well, the point is, uh, I, I don't bake that much, uh, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't write to me if you just want me to confirm that someone did something tacky at their wedding, especially if you already went and it's too late to do anything well, about it. Especially because that's not really an advice question. It right. isn't, what should I do? It's just like, don't you agree with the way I feel? Right, and I'm not Miss Manners. Right. And even Miss Manners, I feel like, is pretty relaxed about uh, deciding that other people are or aren't tacky. Like, she'd rather she'd rather get a question about what you should do rather right. than how you should feel. Because regulating people's feelings is actually bad manners. <sighs> I'm upset by how good you are at this oh. and the fact that you bake more than me. I will dial it back. I appreciate that. <laughs> Did not see. 
We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. On that note, uh, Carvel's going to help me answer a couple of questions uh, today, and a lot of them are pretty intense. So okay. let's uh, let's jump right into it. Let's jump right in. Sleeves rolled up here. Yeah. So uh, the first one uh, is called loss of child. Oh, wow! It's slightly more metaphorical than you think. <laughs> so I guess don't worry so much. Um, dear Prudence, I adopted a very troubled foster child when she was six years old. She had a myriad of problems, including reactive attachment disorder and oppositional defiant disorder. I got her into a special needs school and took her to three to five therapy sessions every week for 12 years. She hated living with me and longed to go back to her birth parents. She ran away eight times. When she was 18, she moved back in with her birth parents, and I grieved her loss for three years. Now that I finally feel resolved with that part of my life, she's begun calling me and telling me that her birth parents have rejected her, and now she wants money and help. My family says to ignore her and that she is only using me. I'm afraid to open myself up to that pain again. What do you think? Wow. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, so this question actually hits home for me because this is not totally unlike my own childhood Mm -hmm. in that I um, was taken in by a family that wasn't my birth family when I was eight Uh, And then I returned to live with my mother when I was, they were like extended relatives. And then I returned to live with my mother when I was like 13. And, and, uh, and actually that, that that same thing happened when I was uh, 18 months too. I went Mm -hmm. to live with another set of relatives and then returned to my mother at four. So I know how like crazy uh, it can be when um, you change families a lot. And like reactive attachment disorder is a phrase I didn't, hadn't didn't know until someone told me but when i heard about it i was like oh that's exactly how i felt yeah what is that by the way i haven't heard that before well i'm not qualified to like really put it into super duper like legit words so i could just be spouting weird stuff but the way i understand it is that it has to do with like we form like our what's happening in early childhood like like infancy and Mm -hmm. our early like bonding with our using maternal figures is that we're learning how to build reaction like uh, how to build attachments and mm-hmm. how to connect and expect p- things from people and want things from people and know how to show up and have people show up for us and all that's happening really early like in the first like three four months mm-hmm. you know and uh when kids have that disrupted mm-hmm. then they they have they they react and don't react to attachment in weird ways right they bond to people they shouldn't bond to they let go of people at like random moments they're a- able to shut down their like emotions it's a whole bunch of right. and that leads to a whole bunch of other weird stuff so like a teacher might find that they build a relationship with that kid and it seems super cool and then halfway through the year that kid just does something really terrible mm. that like and the teacher's like what was that i thought we were cool yeah and that person just was hurtful to me but that's a kid who's like struggling with how to properly build and maintain relationships right <clears throat> I, I think too one thing that leapt out at me in the way that this letter was written um is it's incredibly emotionally constricted. Mm. Like the the letter writer, and I, I don't want to ascribe anything about the letter writer's like emotional um, makeup from mm-hmm. that, but just like, it's just, she had a lot of problems. I took her to many therapy sessions. She hated living with me and ran away. There was nothing of, mm-hmm. I really loved her. Mm-hmm. I was really sad that yeah. I couldn't, you yeah. know, 
help her open up in the way I wanted. Uh, I, I tried to give her a lot of love. And again, that doesn't mean that those things didn't happen. I just that really stands out to me that this letter feels like it was written by someone who who is trying to put all of their feelings in like a two by four box. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, and I, I mean, I think I think when you take on I mean, raising children is super duper hard. And I think when you take on a child at a certain age, and you kind of bring them into your life, and they already have a set of issues that you didn't quite create. Mm-hmm. That can be really hard, and I think parents react to that in different ways. Some parents are just like, "I'm going to leave my heart open," and blah blah blah. But sometimes kids are those kids are really difficult, mm. and parents feel double crossed and double crossed again and again. And sometimes the response to that is to sort of be like, "I have to maintain." What appear to be some boundaries of coldness, mm-hmm. but are really boundaries of like me just like not getting swept up in this person's tornado. Mm-hmm. That having been said, I think that when you take a kid in at that age, you're making a commitment. Yeah. And that and that's what you've signed up for. Yep. One time my own daughter, who I did not adopt, I was complaining. I think I've told you this before. I was com- they were in the the car and they were loud. I, I had two kids. They were at that point, this was like three years ago, so they were seven and you know 10 or something and uh they were so loud and it was so annoying and finally i was like guys can you just with the noise can you knock it off and my daughter goes if you didn't want it to be loud don't have kids (laughs) 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 and it was one of those moments where i was like actually she's right and i've kind of held that as a little bit of a credo like i did sign up for this and Mm -hmm. i think that and that doesn't mean that you that you're happy about everything. It mm-hmm. doesn't mean that you love everything. It doesn't mean you let whatever happens. But it means that that's part of the commitment that you make when you invite a child. Because I don't think there's anything crueler right. than, especially for someone that's already experienced a break in that attachment, yeah. to say like, "I'm here for you. I love you. I support you." And then, and then, and if my love is unconditional. And then now you're acting in a way I don't like. Never mind. Right. And I think that can sometimes come up, right, with things like adoption and and fostering kids like there was the sort of famous story a few years back of a woman who had adopted a young boy from Russia Mm. uh, and he came to her I think around seven or eight years of age and a year later she sent him back on a plane with a note pinned to him just like I can't raise him Um, and not not to compare the letter writer to that situation but I think sometimes especially in America um, there's a narrative about adoption that's a little bit like you're doing someone a favor yes um they should be grateful. Yes. And if they don't deserve your love and affection, you should cut them off. That comes a little quicker than it does with biological children. Like, I'm trying yes. to read this. I think if if I read this and it was not, I adopted a troubled foster child, but it was just my daughter's very troubled. She has a lot of issues. She ran away when she was 18. Like, she moved out, and now she's in touch with me again. I think there'd be slightly less of everyone in my life says she's just using you. Don't talk to her. Yes. Like this. People don't say that your children are just using you as quickly as they say that about adopted children. Right. Right. And again, I don't want to, there's very little to go on in this letter. I don't want to suggest the letter writer is uh, like responsible for this narrative or is a bad person. But I, I, I think this person, this girl's your daughter. Like full right. stop. Not, not adopted daughter. She's but daughter. your daughter. That's even right. though she ran away to live with her birth parents. Like. Right. You know, the three to five therapy sessions you drove her to every week for 12 years aren't something she owes you for. That was something that you did that made you her parent. And so I think don't think of that as like, so she fucking owes me gratitude and good behavior. Think of that as I did that for my kid and she might never be the like healthy, well-adjusted adult I would love for her to be. 
but I didn't do that as a favor to someone else's kid to get them to become mine. Yeah. One of the other things that that struck me about the, the way this letter is constructed, and this is more the writer in me that sort of like reads about how, you know, reads through the lines about how people organize their arguments, is that, she, you know, she... I, I'm assuming it's a she. I don't know, actually. But right. it, it occurs to me that, like, this thing about her going back to her birth parents mm-hmm. probably felt like something of a betrayal. Right. Uh, um, because Simply because of where it appears in the narrative. Like, yeah. I sort of did all this stuff, and then she went and did this thing, and people are now saying she's using me. As, as though the fact that she went to find her birth parents is evidence right. that this other, quote-unquote, non-birth parent is simply a, a pawn in this young right 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 um and so i can i can empathize with a feeling of betrayal at that point Mm -hmm. because one thing i also noticed in my own experience is how the parent that takes over for the parent that has failed Mm -hmm. usually has terrible opinions of the parent that has failed yeah and so i know that you know that's something that comes up where a parent is like you you know like they don't trust the mother or whomever that has left and they don't think you should either right and so if you develop your own point of view about right. that parent that abandoned you that's really hurtful to the parent that took you in and it must somehow be a moratorium on the way that I tried to raise you that's right you, um, you're rejecting my thing altogether right right yeah. so I would I, I would try to urge this letter writer I think not to think of her getting to be with her birth parents as a rejection of you absolutely it's actually pretty understandable that she would want to have if possible some sort of relationship with them. And it's actually very sad that her birth parents have yet again turned her out. Oh, my goodness. Yes. Um, and again, that doesn't make her uh, an easy person to get along with. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you guys uh, are going to be able to have some sort of like flawless uh, parent-child relationship. But I, like this is a young person in a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to give her money. I don't know what she's like with money. Uh, it, there's nothing in here about what she wants the money for. Like, is this money for food and rent or is this just money because she'd like to squeeze something out of you? Um, like, you'll have to kind of think about that as you decide whether or not you do want to help her financially. Um, but but uh, if she just it says money and help, like, yeah, yeah I, I think yeah. you should consider very seriously Taking that call. Yeah. Um, and even if it's painful. I would agree. Yeah. Because, I mean, I think the main thing here is this feeling that, like, once you adopt someone, you no longer have adopted them. Yeah. Yeah. They're now your child. Yeah. And and that doesn't mean that you have to be a doormat and let her dictate the terms of your relationship forever. You can absolutely set limits. Like, if she becomes, like, verbally abusive or or, or yeah. tries to harm you in some way, like, right. absolutely draw a boundary. Um, but if you are just so upset that she went to be with her birth parents that you would like to reject her in turn, right? you're the parent. You have to be bigger than that. Yeah. Um, and she's your kid. She's always going to be your kid. Yeah. Um, and so, unfortunately, you're going to have to be a parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish them a lot of luck. That yeah. sounds really hard. Yeah, that um, is a hard situation. Well, would you like to move on to a letter called The Worst Aunt in the World? Yeah. I mean, yeah. We're, we're, we're on a roll. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... 
To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. I'm going to take a break for a moment to remind you all that the complete Dear Prudence podcast experience is exclusive to Slate Plus members. Members get much more of this show, more questions, more answers, more talking, more advice, with no ads or interruptions. They also get more of the Dear Prudence column on Slate.com. And that's not all Slate Plus members get longer ad-free versions of other Slate podcasts, too. They get access to the ambitious Slate Academy series like The History of American Slavery and A Year of Great Books. They're first in line for tickets to Slate events like live podcast tapings, and they get 30% off tickets. That's not even all. They're tall, strong, and never have cavities. And the whole thing is just $5 a month or $50 for a year. Try it free for two weeks. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. All right, so uh, worst Worst aunt in the world. Ant or aunt? Go ahead. Moving I on. I say aunt personally. Yeah, I I, I, I feel thought. like for a, a, a podcast, I should say aunt. Is that so? Fascinating. I feel like it's more formal, and I'm also worried that uh, people would think I meant the bug. Okay. Then they <laughs> yeah, this is the worst aunt I've ever seen. Go ahead. All right. So, uh, <clears throat> dear Prudence. My nephew suffers from a rare disease, and my sister-in-law has found a doctor in Europe who has successfully treated a number of patients with the same illness. She wants to take her son there for treatment, except the costs are very expensive. As the odds of survival remain low, her insurance doesn't cover it. She's raised as much money as she can from family and various fundraisers, but it's not nearly enough. She approached me last week in tears pleading for financial assistance. I have a large amount of savings in the bank, which I've been saving since I was 12. My fiancé and I were planning to buy a home this year. My sister-in-law is asking to borrow all of it. And realistically, she can't repay me unless she wins the lottery someday. I worked two jobs ever since college and have sacrificed a lot thinking of my own future. Giving all my money now would mean a huge financial setback and long-term repercussions for me. But how can I say no when this means that otherwise my nephew will die before the next New Year? Please help. I'm torn. Wow. So, um, one time I went to ask a friend of mine for advice on something and, uh, I was like, it was like a moral dilemma. Like, should I, or should I not do this? And he said to me, the fact that you're asking means that you already know what the right thing is to do. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you wouldn't have to, right. You wouldn't be asking, you're asking for my permission to do the wrong thing, right. but you know what the right thing is. Right. And, um, that that sort of comes to mind when I hear this because it <clears throat> makes me think about why this person has written this letter. Like why? Like if they if they want to, like they know the right thing to do is to help in the situation, mm-hmm. but they don't want to have to. Yeah, and they're asking if it's okay to not. Yeah, and so really, it's not a question of like what is. The right or wrong, right? You know that versus what is acceptable. Mm-hmm. Is it like personally, spiritually, morally, publicly acceptable to deny this money? And the situation is so dire because it's really like your money or your life. Yeah, it's like this thing standing between me and the death of this relative. Right, is this amount of money that I've saved, and and more than the death of of this boy? Because it sounds like you know. This isn't a sure thing. This isn't like this treatment is almost guaranteed to cure him. But it would be the difference between a death where 
it felt like they were able to do everything they could to try to save a very young person from dying, you know, an untimely death versus we did all we could. Sometimes in life you face an illness that no amount of money or treatment can cure. I mean, if, if like, I guess the way I would think of it is like, if you gave the money and he died anyways, to me, the gift you would be giving his mother is the knowledge that she didn't let her son die when there was a chance someone could have helped him. And I just, I feel so strongly that that would be worth it. Well, um, well, the flip side of that too, which leads to the same conclusion is, this is one of the ones we have to play the tape forward and be like, if I don't give the money mm-hmm. and this person dies, mm-hmm. how am I going to feel in 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? Yeah. Like, to what extent is that going to, like trouble me yeah and my beautiful house yeah. that i get to buy with the money i've right. been saving since i was 12 that someone was like and, and i don't and it's interesting because usually in letters like this it seems like people offer some mitigating stuff right like i know this is the right thing to do but my sister-in-law is always running these scams i or hate her blah, 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 yeah, hate yeah. Her or, or she has a history of lying about exactly. illness. but there's none of that here mm-hmm. and so it re- this really feels like it's not like it's not like the sister-in-law is like always always coming to borrow money it's not one of those weird moral things you get sometimes where it's like this person's always struggling with money i shouldn't have to help them right and um it's just like here's the situation i have this money and i don't want to let it go because it could have repercussions for me Mm -hmm. if i let it go and i'm like but if you don't let it go it'll have pretty severe repercussions maybe for you also and definitely for people that, again, based on the letter, I'm assuming you're our, our family members that you are currently in good and loving standing with. Yeah. And honestly, even if you only sort of like them, you know, your right. you're <laughs> right, like right. brother's child, that's a close relationship. And that's a young, you know what I mean? It's not like, well, he's already in his 70s. Maybe yeah. it's time. This is a child. Yeah. And I, I feel like reading this, I feel like this letter writer has their heart in the right place. Yeah. I think they know what they have to do. Yeah. I think their real question is, why is life so unfair? Mm. And not just why was it unfair to mm. my brother and his wife and their child, but why do I have to suffer? Like, as a result, why can't they get the money some other way? Yeah. And that just sucks. I'm really sorry. Like, yeah. you've worked really hard and you really had your heart set on something that's important, but not more important than a sick kid. And it's got to hurt and feel unfair to think all the things that I've spent my time thinking about and working towards all of a sudden are totally trumped by some random thing that I didn't even like right. have anything to do with. Right. Just got foisted on me. You know, one, like, I, I keep replaying this letter in my head and trying to find what is the logistical reason why you'd be reluctant. I mean, I understand you don't want to give up your life savings, but I keep being like, is the sister-in-law, do they have a bad relationship be- or something like that? And the other question that I keep wondering is why didn't the brother come and ask? Mm. Yeah, because it says too. my sister-in-law. Yeah. yeah. So uh, the brother's not even mentioned. So I don't, that that to me is a random, it's a thread you can't follow because yeah. you would just be guessing. Too many but, unknowns. But, uh, but the only way that you could really, I think you could really morally justify bulking at this proposition is if there were some tremendous and specific damage, and I don't even know what that would be. Right. That would like trump the life of a child. The 
the only thing that I can think of right now, weirdly, uh, I, I I don't often get biblical on the show. Oh, here we go. Uh, but it reminds me of the Book of Esther, which is uh. from um, the the Hebrew Old Testament. Uh, if you're playing as a Protestant. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the basic story is that Esther is a, a young Jewish woman who kind of through a series of, of outrageous events becomes the wife uh, of the king of this great kingdom. And he doesn't know that she's Jewish and kind of like in the background, one of his advisors is sort of plotting to um, uh, carry out a, like a pogrom against all the Jews in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Um, and her cousin is this beggar. He sits outside the city gates. His name is Mordecai. And she calls to him one evening and she kind of says, you know, the king doesn't know that I'm Jewish. If I go to him and and kind of ask him to to protect us as a people, um, I'm sort of afraid that he'll he won't help me or that he'll think less of me or that I'll get in trouble. Um, I was I'm afraid to do something that I know is the morally right thing to do. Mm. And Mordecai says to her, you know, here's the thing: if you remain silent, help might come from another corner, and you'll have to live with that. And who knows that uh, whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Like he kind of reframes uh, it as maybe this is why you're maybe here. This is, maybe this is why you saved the money. Right. Like, yeah, maybe yeah. this is why you saved the money yeah. so that you could be a part of something that would either yeah. save a child or at the very least give his parents a peace of mind of knowing that they did everything they could to save his life. Yeah. And there's also the old, if you, if the situation were reversed. I, I just think it's going to be <laughs> you know. something that, like, it's going to be unfair and shitty in parts, mm. and you're going to be able to sleep really well. Mm. Um, and that's an important part of being a person, I think, mm. is is making decisions that don't, like, a year or five years or ten years from now wake you up in the middle of the night and make you think, oh, my God, how did I miss that? Mm. And I don't think you're going to feel that way um, if you if you give them the money. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, mm-hmm. give them the money. Give them the money and let us know how we, things go. We rule. Give them the money. Ding, yep. Ding. Okay. Uh, so uh, the, the the nice thing is we're like slowly moving <laughs> in a in a gentler direction. These, these letters very slowly get less and less sort of earth shattering. Good because I don't know how much deeper. <laughs> yeah. Dear yeah. prudence, my hand was chopped they off. They do by a baby. <laughs> they do by my baby. By as my a baby of fact. has chopped my hand off. Um. Uh, they do. They do continue in a sort of uh, financial vein, and these yeah. are all sort of like how do I how do I mix relationships and money, um, okay. family, romantic, etc. You don't. Moving um, on. You don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think there's always like some people who want the answer to be, can I just live in a cave and make <laughs> right. financial right. decisions in a vacuum and never be affected by other people's right. decisions? And right. I, I would love to be able to help more of you do that, but I don't think that's going to be possible. <laughs> uh, Carvel, thank you very much for I joining really us in the studio. Uh, we'll have to have you back sometime. Absolutely. I want to close all of these wonderful financially related letters uh, by looking at what happens when you turn a relationship into a financial transaction, when you sort of buy into the idea that the party that makes more money should have more say in your relationship and that the person who makes less money um, doesn't get to contribute in the same way to household decisions. That is how you end up as the second Mrs. De Winter in Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, 
where she wanders through the halls of Manderley, too afraid to ask if she can have her tea in her room instead of the library, which is drafty and full of the creepy old Mrs. Danvers, reminding her of how great the first Mrs. De Winter was, who had her own money and, as such, could say bow to a goose. Uh, that's what happens. You end up being Joan Fontaine, wandering around, getting yelled at by Laurence Olivier, and he says things like, didn't you know I hated Rebecca? And it's like, of course she didn't know you hated Rebecca. You never once said you hated Rebecca. You don't let her ask questions. Creepy guys show up at the house and intimidate the hell out of her. You never smile at her. And you ruin parties by failing to mention things like, by the way, don't ever wear the beautiful dress in the portrait adorning the hall in like the main entryway because I hated my first wife. So she does all this to please you and shows up wearing that dress and you throw a fit. Um, and that's because they had a transactional relationship where she felt like she couldn't say anything because he, quote unquote, saved her from financial ruin because she was just a sad little lady's companion. And he's rich old Dr. Manderley. I cannot remember his given name right now. Maxim. It was Maxim. I remember because Joan Fontaine was always sort of like nervously saying things like, aren't we happy, Maxim? Um, and they weren't. They never were. Um, and it was sad. And then their house burned down. So if you... Let money add weight to your opinion in a relationship. Your house will burn down and you will never be happy. And that's all the advice I have for you today. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Casey Miner. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like the show please go to iTunes and write us a review. iTunes is an opaque overlord, but we do know that reviews help new listeners find the podcast. Plus, we'd like to know what you think. Just search for Slate Dear Prudence. If you want us to answer your question, call and leave us a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 401-371-3327. And we might give you an answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. If you want, you can also record your question using the Voice Memo app or its equivalent on your smartphone. When you record your questions, please keep it short, 30 seconds or a minute tops. Send it to us at prudencepodcast at gmail.com. I guess my question is, how does she know that those four belong to her? Like, do they have her name written on? Are they, like, color-coded? Well, he, he just he How's he going to remember that those four belong to her? That's what I was concerned about. Is like, how does he remember... Unless he unless he color codes them, which would actually be the smart way to go. Or about that. hang on, has a little tiny portrait painted on the inside of each pearl <laughs> like, of each gal. I feel like that's super labor intensive. If you are like you a know labor what I of mean. Love. I mean, if he cares enough to get a tattoo of forty two rosary bead slash pearls uh-huh. on his back, uh-huh. uh, I think he can go the extra mile and get little tiny. Um, you know, like when they paint your when they like, like write your, your name, name in, in rice. rice. Yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah, but yeah. that guy's a specialist. I don't know that you're running. I really hope we're recording guy. all of this. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.